Well, if you have uh, your copy of, of God's Word, uh, let us open up to the book of Acts. We're going to finish the end of chapter 11, and uh, then we're going to jump to chapter 13. We're going to come back to 12 next week, I promise. Uh, but the way uh, sort of everything is sort of aligned uh, this week, and I want to focus specifically on the church in Antioch and what is going on there. If there was one church in all the New Testament that I could pick that I would say like this would be sort of the dream for us to become like this, it would be the church in Antioch. And there's a couple of reasons for that, and I'm going to show you that in the text and um, as we sort of navigate it and as we walk through it. Um, every church, every individual needs something to look to. Um, we need to know modeled like how churches are supposed to react and respond, how we're supposed to navigate in issues like culture, um, how we are supposed to interact, what our mission is supposed to be as a church. And oftentimes God will lay down these uh, descriptions of what these churches have done. Sometimes he gives this to us like the unfaithful ones. And so it's not so much imitate this, but it's like learn from this. But in this moment, as we walk through this book, what we see in the book of Acts is we see this moment where this church, they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. And they're walking with, with, on the outside with everything that seems to be in a spirit of faithfulness, in a spirit of kindness and obedience to the Lord and what God is asking them to do and, and calling them to do. But we talk about the church in Antioch today. And one of the things that we need to know about Antioch before we even begin to jump in is the understanding that Antioch was a cosmopolitan, multiracial, multi-ethnic kind of place to be. It was the third largest city at the time and it boasted in a population of over a half a million individuals that found their home and called their home Antioch. And so if the church was gonna plant the very first church internationally, Antioch would be a prime location for them to do that. Because in Antioch, there is literally every tribe, nation, and tongue, um, every ethnicity, every type of person that existed there, all of the things that we would say when we talk about urban ministry and being in the city, similar to the way that Fort Worth is even today, Antioch had and Antioch possessed. And what I want to do is I want to show you um, just four really characteristics of, of what I think the church was doing. Now, um, I've been around church life long enough. I've preached these sermons and, and I've, I've been on the receiving end of these sermons. And oftentimes what can happen is as the preacher's sort of laying out the list of here's the good things, oftentimes we'll begin to measure ourselves under that umbrella and just go like, man, I'm not even close to doing any of these things. And it almost unintentionally, as you're saying, this is how and what it means to follow Jesus. It unintentionally at times, it'll yoke you down and sort of make you feel like you've got this weight around your neck and you feel these great feelings of inadequacy, okay? And I just wanna say that to say this, every one of these characteristics that we'll look at, I, I'm not batting 400 on this, I'm not batting 1,000 on these. There are seasons in my own personal life where I'll do some of these better than others. And what we wanna do is we want to look at these under the paradigm of these are really standards that we're striving for. We're trying to be like this. When we say, be like Jesus, this is just a little bit more tangible way as we look at this church when we say we want to be like Jesus and embody the gospel. And so as we begin, I want to draw your attention, beginning in verse 19. 
And here the text reads in 19 and 20 and 21, follow along with me as it says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so what's happening is what we're seeing is really the first descriptor of the church, that Antioch understood that they were going to be a people that regularly and eagerly spoke and talked about Jesus. They didn't discriminate on who was going to be on the receiving end of that. It didn't matter to them if you were a Hellenist or if you were a Jew, though it started off with one type of person and ethnicity. The Antioch church understood that their vision and perspective needed to be expanded just a little bit. And so they were eager to speak about and to tell people about who Jesus was and what he had done. Now, I want to make this point that I think the church in Antioch gets that I think oftentimes churches fail to recognize and we as people and individuals fail to recognize. As they were talking about the Lord with people that didn't know them, the church in Antioch understood one thing and I think this is crucial for us to understand this morning. They understood what missiologists refer to as contextualization. They understood that the gospel and the word of God never changes its meaning. It's the same yesterday as it is today and it will be in the future. But what the church understood that was different was that gospel was applied in different contexts with different people. Same meaning, different application. The way that looks in, in, in 2020 is that, listen, we understand when we travel overseas to a foreign missions context, that missionaries are gonna react and respond and they're gonna do things a little bit differently than we would do like here in the context of, of living in Fort Worth. We're gonna approach people a, a little bit differently. Um, one of the ways that, that we do that is, is by how we dress and we engage the culture. We're, yes, we're set apart in the gospel, but we really just wanna kind of blend in, right? We, we don't wanna have the typical missionary guard, but we've got our fishing pants that zip off and our, our Columbia fishing shirt, right? And then whatever those hats are at REI that you can get that make you look like you're going through a, a jungle safari. Like that is not how to dress when you go on a mission trip, right? The question that you ask is, how do they dress? How is it, <coughs> excuse me, that I can just blend in to the context? They understood contextualization. To illustrate it a different way, if I'm explaining to a four-year-old what it means that Jesus has died for our sins and by faith that we can trust him. I will say those things with qualifier. I'll use easier words for them to understand. I'm not gonna sit my five-year-old down and the context of that conversation is gonna be wrapped in language. Like, well, first of all, Duke, my youngest son, you need to get your eschatology right and understand the larger picture of salvific history so that we can identify the soteriology and determine whether or not you believe in predestination or foreknown, whether or not you wanna be a five point Calvinist or a four point Calvinist, or do you want to be the guy that tries to fight the Calvinists all the time? Like, who is it that you want to be? I would never do that with, with my five-year-old, right? Because there's a context that it's applied in, in a different way. And so what the church in Antioch understood is that there's a specific context. And here's the thing that's happened to Travis over the years. 
Oftentimes, it could be said of us, hypothetically, that we have attempted to apply the gospel in the same way as our context and our city has changed. Our neighborhood, it's changed. Tarrant County is changing. It's rapidly changing. And so how we function as a church, we, we have to adapt those things and we have to reevaluate them. We don't change them just to change them, but rather so that we can be effective in, in what we're doing. One guy said contextualization this way. He said, it's basically the process of making the gospel and the church at home in the given, con- in the given culture, making it at home not capitulating to the culture, not changing what we mean by the gospel and that Jesus is sufficient for our sins, but rather how we apply it and how we, how we settle in. And so listen, church, as a church, we cannot do ministry the way we've done ministry for a hundred years. We can't even do ministry how we did it last year because culture is changing so rapidly. Student ministry, college ministry, preschool, even You may never admit this, but even senior adult ministry is changing. And how we minister to seniors, it's different today than when it was 10 years ago. That's the context that we're constantly seeking to apply as we preach and as we proclaim. And I want to say this about the goal of contextualization. The goal of contextualization is not making you or me comfortable with the gospel, but rather the goal of contextualization, it's clarity. It's not about putting Matt Getty at ease with me as I talk to him so that he's at ease and he's comfortable with that, but rather I adapt my processes so that I can speak the gospel to him or someone else with greater precision and with clarity so that they rightly understand what it is that I'm saying and what it is that I'm trying to accomplish. And they understand most importantly, the good news that is the gospel. But the church in Antioch, they understood that. But if we keep reading in the text, look with me back at verse 20. And I want you to notice, he says this, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they were speaking to the Hellenists and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Here's one of the things that I think we often get wrong that the Antioch church got right. We too often, when talking about Jesus, we speak about him with these abstract terms. We speak about Jesus because we care about his transcendence that he's set apart from us, right? He's holy and he's righteous, we're not. Any holiness or righteousness that we have, it's because he's given it to us and and rightfully so. And so that that sets him apart in the transcendence. But I think one of the failures of, of churches oftentimes in talking about the Lord is we tend to stick there and we don't talk about him as if we actually know him, but rather as if he was just an idea or a past historical figure, or it, it's somehow this intellectual assent that I've got to just know the facts. And, and listen, we need to know the facts and rightly understand him. But any way that we're gonna be persuasive in our evangelism, it has to become because we are talking about the Lord from the context of a relationship, of intimacy. We're walking with Jesus as if he were right here beside us and we know that the Holy Spirit is here present with us in this room. He's with us. And so we understand that that Christ is near and and he's with us and he's not some abstract being or or person that that exists like Star Wars in the force of somehow, but he's real and and he's tangible and I I can be with him and he will be with me. 
But I think more so than that, I, I want you to look back at verse 20 and I want you to see what I would just characterize in, in notes as just what, what's characteristic of the church in this moment. And I'm just gonna call it personal invisibility. If you look back at verse 20, notice it says this, but there were some of them. What a weird phrase. No name, no real background. We don't know if they served on staff at the church, if they were the, the senior pastor, the lead teaching pastor, they were the college minister, they were a, we don't know any of that. But what I think is informative about this and really what's instructive is because it's a group of just no-named individuals just quietly and faithfully are just walking with God. They're on mission and they're just this faithful presence day in and day out, not trying to achieve celebrity status. Do you realize, I know you realize, we, we live in a day and age of, of the Christian celebrity. Do you know what that is when I, when I say that? So, so the, the, the irony of this statement, the paradox. So my sole, my sole purpose and goal in life is I wanna make as much of Jesus for the time that I have, whether I get to live to be 50 years or 80 years, I wanna talk about Jesus, I wanna share Jesus, I wanna teach people about him. Like that's my goal. It's not Drew's platform or Travis's platform or the L, it's just simply, it's all about and should always be about him. But we live in a day where we have what's known as, as the Christian celebrity. And what this means is, is that too often, pastors first and foremost, I think it can apply to, to, to people just that are, that are believers and walking, we become so overly concerned with name and branding recognition that what we do is we do it basically for the gram. We do it for the likes, we do it for the comments, we do it for the emojis. Like we want feedback, we want validation to speak into our life somehow. And then here in this moment in verse 20, you've just got this random group, not random, they were a called out group of people that were walking and they weren't seeking any recognition or fame or even really a platform to be talked about. And one of the things I think that that just screams at us and says is that we must never confuse being popular with being significant. Too often we say popularity means that I'm a significant person. If I can achieve popularity and fame, then I'll therefore be significant in people's eyes. I have no idea if this is like stress related to COVID or I'm getting a little bit older, a little bit fatter and losing a little bit more of my hair. But do you remember when, when COVID first happened? And do you remember um, all of these celebrities that were getting on Instagram and Facebook and they were putting out these posts and they were saying things like this. Hey guys, we just want you to know we're all in this together, right? Like we're all, we're all together in this, right? Like be brave right? Whatever you need, you know, as they sit on their like $2 million yacht in their third home, like I'm not despairing those things, but I'm like, really, like, I'm not going to call you when, if I need help in, in the middle of the pandemic, like, and, and, and it's this idea that the older I get, the less I care about what celebrities and sports figures think about anything. Like popularity has nothing to do with significance. In fact, more often what happens, the more popular you get and the more you talk, you better be careful because you might just show you're more ignorant than you have something significant to say, right? It's like, man, you should just hold that back and not say anything. 
But in this moment, we've got these invisible men and women that are serving faithfully in the church. And man, they're just doing the things that God had just called them to do. But we mustn't confuse popularity with significance. But I want you to know more so than them being passionate about evangelism, I want you to see how they were committed to making disciples. Not just converting the lost, because if you didn't know this, the mission of the church is not to just convert people as if they are targets. The mission of the church is to make disciples. People that are walking with God and they're, they're, they're helping others walk with God. Yes, converts come and people get saved, but the goal is to make disciples. They do this in a couple of ways. Let's look very carefully at verse 22 through 26. And in verse 22 says this, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So as they were committed to making disciples, if you want to be a disciple, then you've got to understand what's happening in verse 22 because the church understood this. They needed accountability in their life. They needed someone to come alongside them in a loving and a kind way. And, and really at this moment in the church, it was really just to verify whether or not the things they were saying were of God really were of God or they were just making it up and, and pretending. And so they needed someone to come and to verify that. So the church, which was sort of centralized in Jerusalem at this time, they send Barnabas to go check because they understood that they needed accountability in their life. Listen, every single human being in this room right now made in the image of God, you need accountability in your life. You need someone to, yes, hold your feet to the fire at times, but, but accountability is more than just let me call you out on your stuff. It's more than like, hey, let me yell at you and tell you what a bad job that you're doing so you'll correct that. That's not entirely what accountability is. I think more often than not, and what we see here is demonstrated in the text, is we see accountability in the form of encouragement. I want you to look at verses 22 and, and 23 and 24 where he says this, so he comes and sees in verse 23, he says, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he says Barnabas was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So one of the chief ways that Barnabas was bringing accountability and verifying for one but he was also spending the bulk of his time trying to encourage. Many of you know this already. Barnabas' nickname was what? Son of encouragement. He was given the name and he lived up to his name and he spent his time and in, in, in his life seeking to build other people up with, with encouraging words. Like I see God's favor on you. I see God's grace in your life. Listen, um, I don't say this to shame you or to condemn you. When was the last time? you encouraged someone and just said, I see the Lord like working in your life. And let me tell you something, that is not a passive aggressive attempt from this pastor to get encouragement from you. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, I would go the opposite direction. You guys have been so wonderful and you guys have been so encouraging. I don't need your encouragement at this point. I may come up here in a couple weeks and go, I need some encouragement. I may say that, but I don't need it. Like I, my cup is filled and, and I hear this regularly from you. What I'm talking about is the person to your right and to your left, in front of you and behind you, and speaking life into them. Like I see God's hand 
in your life. I remember when I was in high school, graduating a senior at graduation, and there was this parent that came up to me who I didn't really have a, I didn't know him that, that well. And he came up to me, and I remember this conversation at 18. He said, um, Drew, listen, I, I see uh, the hand of the Lord on your life. I don't know what God's called you to do, but I think the Lord is gonna do great things in your life. I'm 38 years old, right? 38 years old? 38 years old. I still remember that, that little word that took place in a matter of seconds and was gone. And I, I've held on to that since then. And so he provides accountability, he encourages them. But the next I wanna see is they make disciples, they yield to the instruction that's given. Look in verse 25 and 26. He says this, so Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him in verse 26, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the church. And they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. First international church ever planted, first location that Christians were ever identified as Christians, which basically at that time, the understanding was, all it meant was in a derogative term, you are a little Christ follower. You're a little Christ. You're following this guy, Jesus. And so we're gonna identify you as Christians. It didn't mean what we infer it to mean today. It was actually a very derogative term. But I want you to notice in verse 25 what Barnabas does. Barnabas could have sought the platform of a church that would have had the richest historical legacy of all churches ever. It was the first one to be established internationally. It was growing and it was thriving. And instead of Barnabas going to the pulpit and seeking to have a position in there, what does Barnabas do? He goes and he gets Saul. Why? To share the burden of leadership. Every Sunday school class, every community group in this church ought to have a shared sense of leadership as you shepherd. Every teacher that's been teaching ought to be constantly trying to develop up other teachers to come up underneath them to one day take their place as you reproduce and as you multiply, we ought to constantly be thinking about how we are going to multiply and how we are going to allow other people to come alongside and to share in, in the burden, but to share in the privilege of ministry because it's a privilege when we get the opportunity to serve the church and to serve the Lord. Now I want you to notice something weird begins to happen in verse 27. So here you got this church that's thriving and, and they're doing an incredible job. And then verse 27 comes in and I want you to see these mercy ministries or compassion ministries that existed. Notice he says this, now in these days, in verse 27, there were some prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this prophet makes her way from Jerusalem to Antioch. And she says, listen, there's a famine coming. You need to start preparing now. The church had an option. We could say, well, listen, if that happened today at Travis and someone came in, we would probably cast you aside and maybe try to church discipline you. Like something's wrong. Like that would be very peculiar and very strange for that to happen. But for whatever reason in this moment, the church in Antioch goes, we're gonna believe it by faith. We're gonna trust it. We're gonna believe that this is the word of the Lord and that we need to begin to prepare. And so notice what it says that they did. So this prophet comes, she prophesies this and the disciples determine in verse 29, see where it says this everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
Notice it didn't say just the rich and the wealthy. It doesn't say just the leaders. It doesn't just say those that, that had great means. But it said each one, according to his ability, determined and they sent the gift, they sent the resources. This famine actually came through the flooding of the Nile in AD 45. So the prophet was right. She says the famine's coming, the Nile floods in AD 45. And, and when the Nile floods, it's the source of all of life in, in that area. All the agriculture, it goes away. All the food disappears. And all of a sudden there's a scarcity of, of a commodity. And so when you have a, a high demand and you have very little supply, the cost of eating and food, it skyrockets. And all of a sudden only the rich are able to eat and the poor, they, they just starve and they don't make it. But here in this moment, you have the church responding to needs that existed in the community that they found themselves in. In this multi-ethnic, um, very diverse city, this church finds itself and they take it upon themselves. So there's a couple things about this that I want you to notice. Number one is this. When we see that they take it upon themselves according to their own ability, we learn a couple of things. One, obviously this demonstrates an element of selflessness, right? Like I'm gonna prepare that this is gonna happen and I'm gonna sacrifice to make sure that needs are being met. And so there's this issue of, of this behavior of selflessness, but there's also generosity that exists there. So think about this. I don't know if we have any uh, uh, hoarders in here, like doomsday hoarders or preppers. Like, you know what that is when I say that? Am I, am I dating myself when I say that to this room? Y'all know what I mean when I say that, okay? So like a doomsday prepper is like, they're, they're preparing for the inevitable. Um, all their wildest dreams came true when COVID happened. They're like, it's finally happening, guys. You know, the fulfillment of all my prophecies all these years. And so, so the idea is they're preparing to protect. I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all. I know lots of uh, doomsday preppers and I'm, good, I'm very good friends with them. Trust me, okay? Um, I know where I'm going if it happens, okay? Um, but, but they prepare and then they, they hoard it or they, they have the supply and you can watch this on YouTube and National Geographic and you go and see their stock houses. Like amazing, like thousands, tens upon thousands of dollars in, in food and ammunition and survival. It's amazing what, what they do. But here in this moment, you have this prophecy and she's saying, listen, it's coming and it's going to affect other people. It's also going to affect you. And so the posture could have been, well, we're gonna become a doomsday prepper. We're going to prepare. But their response was different. They say, okay, well, we're gonna find out where the hardest hit areas are gonna be and, and those immediate areas. Maybe we're a little bit well off because we're a little bit removed from, from the Nile River. We're up in, up in Syria, we're the capital of Syria. We're, we're 500 miles north of, of where this is gonna happen, but we will be affected by prices and it will have lasting year-long implications. But their posture was one of generosity, their posture was one of selflessness, their posture was one of, of everyone contributes to the mission of the church. I want you to flip over to chapter 13. And I want you to see as we end, I want you to see the heartbeat and the life of this church and what enabled them, I think, to live the way that they did. And I think it's rooted in this understanding that they, Antioch understood that they were to be a sending church. Antioch was not, listen to me, 
They were not trying to be a destination church, meaning that they didn't measure their success based on how many we could get to come to a service and be with us, but rather their success was how many people we send out of here to plant churches and to start new works and to contribute elsewhere. Notice in verses one, two, and three of chapter 13. He says, now they were in the church at Antioch. There were these prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetric, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said this, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. You notice something peculiar about who left the church? What does the text say? Who'd they send off? They sent off Barnabas and Saul. I would dare say this about Barnabas and Saul, who we know as Paul. The church in Antioch was willing to send out their very best and not their very worst. Oftentimes we have a tendency to want to hold on to our very best. But in this moment, they, they send the brightest, the most capable, the most charismatic. Think about this, if you, if you were that church, what an asset would it be to have Paul and to have Barnabas filling your pulpit? To have them teaching for, for 30 years of ministry. But Antioch understood that, and the congregation affirmed this, because they do this together as a group, we see that in verses one and two. As a church, congregationally, as the Spirit prompted them, they sent their very best out into the world to start new works and to begin new churches and to be churches that plant churches and that plant churches. I don't have this figured out yet, but I know it's something that your elders are talking about. We wanna be a church that multiplies out churches. We wanna to continue to partner with our conventions and, and with our national agencies. We wanna to continue to do that and give, but we wanna be a church that plants churches. I wanna be a part of a church that, that is active in doing that and passionate about doing that. And it may be that some of you are our very best and it may be that God's gonna send some of you guys out of here to go start new works in other places in our city and in our state and in our country and around the world. Antioch understood this and they sent out Paul and they sent out Barnabas and they sent out their very best. But I want you to notice as we end, I want you to notice verse three. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up on stage with me right now. And as they're making their way up and and we continue to, to focus and to pay attention, I want you to notice in verse three, it says this, and after fasting and praying, it says they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do this week by way of of application. Fasting is probably the least desirable of all the disciplines. It perhaps might be the most uninformed and misapplied of all the spiritual disciplines. Fasting is simply this, it's, it's abstaining temporarily from food, specifically in the Bible, it's usually always food, It's abstaining from food for a a very specific God-given purpose. 
So fasting is not intermittent fasting, which has health benefits. Those are not the same things. Fasting biblically is I'm fasting for a God-given purpose. Now you might wanna justify that you're gonna fast so you can lose some weight. That's not the motivation that we want. It may be a benefit of, of practicing fasting on a regular basis. But here's what I know about our city and our country and here's what I know about all the things that are going on. When we fast, one of, the, one of the reasons why we fast is we fast to seek wisdom and guidance from God. We see that in Judges 20, verses five and six, where Israel was thinking about invading Bethel and they're like, do we go back to battle with them? And, and in Judges 20, they, they said, let's call a fast and let's seek the Lord and let's let him tell us whether or not we should attack or not. There's this moment in Joel chapter two, uh, verses five and six, where, or 15 and 16, where Joel calls the congregation. He says, gather the assembly, consecrate it, and go into a fast. We fast when we're seeking guidance and we want wisdom from God. So here's my question to you that I was wrestling with this week that was convicting for me. If I don't need God's guidance and wisdom now in my life, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the, at least the craziest election cycle within my lifetime. And I've been around, not, not as around as long as some of you, but I've been around and seen some. If I'm not willing to pursue God's wisdom and guidance now, when would I ever? Like, what would it take then to get to that point where I would go, okay, I think I will. People in our city and in our state and all around us, they need God's wisdom and they need God's guidance. We need your wisdom and guidance as we prepare to open back up on October the 4th. We wanna open up with wisdom. We wanna open up and, and we wanna be led by the spirit. We wanna be wise in, in what we do and how we do it, how we bring things back and in what time and in what order so that we can make sure that we can continue to gather and to meet in our groups and, and to meet in our, we need wisdom. And so what I'm asking you to do this week is to take one moment this week, one day, sun down to sun up or 24 hours, uh, skip one meal. Only do this physically if you're able to and you can. If you've got to eat for dietary reasons then you, you do your thing, you can fast from something else. But to take one day this week, one moment and, and just to go with, with a purpose of seeking God's guidance and seeking his wisdom and just saying, God, I need it. Every time the church, most of the times the church sought God with, with a degree of intensity, their, their praying was never separated from their fasting. They went hand in hand. The fasting always comes alongside the praying. So if you wanna be a praying church, we must be a fasting church that practices that. We're gonna do some things in the next few weeks to sort of guide up to that. After October the 4th, guess what we're gonna start fasting for and praying for? our election. We need it, don't we? We can't be indifferent. We can't not not care. We realize that our kingdom is not of, of this earth and it's of the one to come. We recognize that, but that doesn't mean that we don't show concern and care politically. We talk about it wisely and, and saturated with the gospel, but do we not need God's wisdom? Do we not need his counsel? Do we not need his heart? If not now, when will we ever? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. I pray right now for anyone watching online or here in this room that does not know you, but you tell us in your word that if they call upon your name, that you, you will save them. And I pray that right now in this room or at home, they would call upon your name and, and just, 
to be saved, just to say, Lord, save me, forgive me of my sins. But Lord, I ask that in this room, for those that that know you, that that are walking with you, Lord, I pray, Father, that that you would push us in in a place and in a posture where we would be dependent upon you and to seek your wisdom and to seek your counsel. Bring to our minds where where we need to pursue that. Father, would you help us be faithful this week? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. As Josh and the team leads us, I'm gonna be down front, Matt Getty's down front, Larry Thompson, one of our elders, is just down front. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you. You can come and and, and we'll do that in a safe way. Uh, If you've got a need in your life that you need to let someone know, let us know and, and let us be the church to you and see how we can help and how we can serve you like the church in Antioch did. I'm gonna invite you to stand. I'm gonna turn it over to these guys as we conclude our time together this morning.